This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Azrael Ismail. He's a photo historian from UCSI University. Welcome to the show, Azrael. Yeah, hey, Azrael. Hi, hi. How are you, hi. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me over. Um, I thought this week we can actually dis, um, discuss something, uh, you know, a topic to do with sort of like photography history. I understand that you are not just a photo historian, but you are actually also, you are actually a maker in, in a way that you can actually sort of like recreate like uh, old photographs. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm the process, you are familiar with the process. Yeah, it's, it's part and parcel. I mean, like uh, more like uh, the practitioner of the craft and okay. to practice you have to understand how the uh, process works and the origin of it, uh, who's responsible and also how it come about. There's a lot of mixtures of knowledge mm. into practicing this. How, how did you first come into the field? I well, mean, what got you interested? Well, I got interested when I was doing my PhD over at the University of Plymouth in the UK. Uh, it all came about uh, when I was, as usual, on a Sunday, you have the car boot sale. So, of course, there's a lot of... Uh, things, stuff and junk that they sell on the weekends and one of it was apparently a daguerreotype. I've seen daguerreotype in photohistorical books. I'm a photographer myself before mm-hmm. uh, I came about into this discipline and I've seen images of it but i never seen one okay. until, that, until that very day. So it, it looked like a small piece of mirror. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it's a small piece of mirror but the moment that you pick it up and at almost an immediacy that a portrait just pops up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's yeah. no way i mean like is this how it behaves right yeah it's quite a magical experience it isn't is it, it uh, is especially and for those of us who haven't seen the daguerreotypes before mm, because yeah. it's not so common in this part of the world correct correct right. um then it yeah i mean like uh, it just pops up it's just like um i think jerry spagnoli uh a contemporary daguerreotypist had um uh, quote it very very nicely it's a prodigy of nature mm. uh, pretty much it just pops out it looks like a, something like holographic almost mm-hmm. like this can't be done in the 19th century then yeah. that's where actually I got curious can it still be done on this day and age so to help our listeners understand the mm-hmm. daguerreotype a bit better can you sort of explain to uh, to us what the daguerreotype is and is that the first sort of photograph that was actually created um, well, or it, how would you define it? It's one of the earliest ones mm-hmm. and one that is popularized uh, once. Uh, it's being created, well, it's being uh, pushed forward by Louis Mandet de Guerre, mm-hmm. a French, more like a theatre manager and also certainly part and parcel towards the making of this daguerreotype. A daguerreotype is a, a cladded silver plate which is being polished to a mirror finish and then it's being sensitized with uh, iodine fumes, and then in which then it's be placed into a contraption, which most cases we call it as the camera, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, uh, a wooden box with a lens on the other end, and then with a certain amount of time, uh, it's being exposed to whatever subjects or objects that is uh, in a bright sunlight, mm-hmm. and then it's being fixed actually sorry so it's been developed yeah goes through the lens and the image goes through the lens and the then it's being exposed onto the uh, exposed sensitized silver plate mm-hmm. 
and then it's been taken back into usually a dark room and being developed in a fume of mercury. Okay. Not a whole lot, but just a small amount of mercury, and then it's being fixed mm. with a one plate solution of uh, what well, we call it as uh, the hypo salt. Wow. Then you have the fixed plate so of uh, the gerotype. In our digital sort of like um, trigger happy world <laughs> that we live in today, <laughs> uh, where taking a photograph means like a snap, a, a press of a button correct, on, a sort of like I, I mean, on your sort of smartphone. That's a rather cumbersome process, isn't it? Oh, well, it is. Um, but nonetheless, I, I would consider it as a scientific journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an experiential journey, and uh, using all these contraptions from the garotype to the wet plate collodion, you use really large equipments, cumbersome equipments, nonetheless. It's more like a performing theatrical show. Okay. Uh, it's it's just you got to um, create a space to do this and set up the camera, and of course you have the passerbys who would start like tapping on my shoulder while I'm taking the image okay. and say, "What are you up to?" And then I have to keep on explaining them the process and so forth. And somehow it always triggers um, uh, more like a memento or memories of the past of their great-grandfathers that used such equipments before. So he hasn't failed to inspire wonder or convey this sense of like magic. Of course. Uh, it, today, it, even in today's sort of like context where we're so used to the photograph, where the photograph has proliferated to such an extent that, you know, we, have, we live in a... In a, in an era where it's this, you are overwhelmed by basically photographic images. Uh, the overwhelming comes as a factor because it's easy to do mm-hmm. one, and then it's virtual. There is no physicality of digital images. There's no actual object that is there. Tangible, right? There is yeah. non tangible objects. That's the concerning part. I mean, you have thousands of images, but it doesn't exist in our actual physical world. With the daguerreotype and also the later towards the silver gelatin prints, mm-hmm. you actually hold right in your hand image objects. Mm-hmm. I would consider this uh, as close as possible what we call it as jewellery. Okay. More like inherited jewellery nonetheless. Mm-hmm. But it's in a form of silver right in front of you. Some of them have a much more value content such as gold or platinum. Mm-hmm. And it has an image on it. Right. Whether or not if it makes any relative sentimental value, that's another factor to it. Mm-hmm. But it does bring about uh, a certain tangible object that needs to be carried forward as a precious commodity okay. of the past. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess the process of actually developing the daguerreotype is also very deliberative, right? And if you want to contrast that to how we take photos these days, it's very different, right? The process is very instantaneous. Mm-hmm. You don't really ruminate. You don't really have to think so much about it. Whereas I think the compose the yeah, shot, yeah, for the physical process of taking a photo back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially using that kind of equipment, mm-hmm. the experience itself is quite different, right? Yeah. Correct. Um, the thing is, I mean, like majority of the uh, image makers of the past, the daguerreotype and onwards are mainly physicians mm. doctors and so okay. forth so they will and have they, a background they, knowledge they have of a chemical. background knowledge of chemical correct okay. and amateur scientists and certainly know the principles of uh, chemistry and we're not talking about them being artists first actually they are being curious about how images could be made because most of them are not trained draftsmen or some of them are actually trained mm-hmm. draftsmen being that they are physicians and so forth so there is a the, the the art of science and the art of art is mm. still one. There, right. There's no separation. You've got to be a scientist to do art. <laughs> so in short, 
there is that attraction that I have towards that because I got to understand the principle of chemistry, the the physics of uh, how the lens works, the behavior of temperatures and all that. I mean, like I didn't realize I had to go back into my my uh, high school chemistry textbook to understand ah. some of the jargons. So you mean that you went into a PhD program without the intention of actually studying how all no, the no. camera works? You were no, going no, to work on something else? And I then... was working on something right. else. I mean, okay, I was I working on, on the uh, the visual culture of prison studies and okay. out of... I know, it, it's just... <laughs> oh, yes, you know, when, you. When, when you do PhD, you do weird things. Yeah. <laughs> Your brain works in a functional way. So I need a different distraction. So it became as an absolute point when I was obsessed doing this and I want to understand more. It's so much fun and it's so much uh, trial and errors, a lot of errors. I mean, like it's always a good surprise uh, to actually come up with a good image because it's a lot of uh, conditions, a variance to make mistakes mm. uh, in making images. And some people say, do you do deal with composition? He said, most of the time, I don't think about composition. Just as long as the image is there, then there, there you go. I'm happy about it. So there is, um, because the rigor, the practical rigor that you got to practice consistently to understand how everything works and how everything behaves mm. from your equipment to the chemicals as well. Right. Mm. How do other sort of like, com- you, you, I'm, I'm very curious about the passerbys uh, that are sort of, that would have sort uh. of like encountered photography for the first time, right? And I imagine in different cultural communities, often you hear like so-and-so community thinks that the camera is there to rob the soul away from uh, the person. Witchcraft. So there's all these kinds of like, you know, uh, more anthropological sort of like stories that lives to tell the tale. For example, when were, say, the Malay sort of like community first in Malaysia uh, first exposed to daguerreotype? And how did they sort of like reckon with this new instrument? Well, certainly it trickles into the writings of Hikayat Munshi. Okay. Um, when it first came about was uh, circular about 1841. Okay. Uh, in which in Hikayat Munshi did actually uh, quite detailed in his writing in the Hikayat mm. uh, in regards to a process called the daguerreotype. Mm. It's almost as if how he so noted down. So that's really mm. two years after Daguerre successfully mm-hmm. patented the daguerreotype. Correct. And the French state has bought Correct. the patent, right? It's, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, like it's So that's very, very, very soon after that. And soon, because the it technology was... traveled around the world at yeah, a very fast pace. Correct. Uh, Daguerre announced it in August yeah. 1839. And a few years after, it reached to the US and certainly that it exponentially traveled. Mm. It's a part and process of the colonial as well. They use photography as a means on not only just purely documentation, as also another methods to put in captions to the spaces and places uh, where they've been and where they quote-unquote conquer. And before that, it was draftsmen, painters, uh, illustrators that has been doing the job and apparently the daguerreotype and also all other means of photography after that is being utilised for this purpose. And would replace... Mm-hmm. The use of draftsmen. Okay. Yeah, correct. Right. I mean, uh, in the Hikayat Munshi, I mean, he had this described it quite extensively on mm. how the making of the daguerreotype, and mm. this is how. So we actually mm. walked us through the process of how, like, you develop a photograph. Uh, in uh, Munshi yes. Abdullah, okay. uh, in Munshi Abdullah, yes, right. uh, step by step, and understanding that uh, Munshi Abdullah himself, he's he's a trained printer. Okay. So the the vocabulary, the language that he used is exacting, mm. uh, and it's. 
the description of the plates, mm. the description on uh, the uh, the detailing of the image, and also the steps mm. um, is almost like a manual on its own. Actually, that three particular page in the Hikayat Munshi mm-hmm. is almost like a manual of the Gerotype in Jawi. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, cool. So that I would say that's the first quote-unquote manual or theoretically a manual of the daguerreotype that's being observed. Did he subsequently take up experimenting? You mean he, Munshim uh, Sao? Munshim Sao? No, it's not known. It's not known. Did any other subsequent Malay writers then rely on his Jawi, his Abdullah and then sort of like experiment with the daguerreotype? No, the experimentation of the daguerreotype is only short-lived. Okay. It's been taken over quite quickly. After that would be like the wet plate, collodion, the dry plate. They had what, 20 years? Less than that. I think roughly about... Uh, let's say in 1850s, uh, that's where actually the the shift towards another means because it is very expensive to get consistency of the plates. Mm-hmm. One, because uh, it's not reproducible, right? You it's cannot, not reproducible. You, you can't. It's not like today's photography where you have a negative and you can. No, it's one of copies. a kind. Correct. Okay, yeah, right. yes, correct. It's one of a kind. It's mm. only one of a kind. Of course, there are manners of reproducing it, but it's much more difficult. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's one of a kind and it's not, it's still very expensive as it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, cool. Mm. Let's take a break first. Uh, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Azrael Ismail, a photo historian from UCSI. And we've been discussing the history of photography. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest, a photo historian, Azrael Ismail. You're from UCSI University, right? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, Azrael, as we were sort of like talking about the daguerreotype before, you mm-hmm. hinted that it only had a 20 years of shelf life. No, uh, not shelf life. I mean, um, like it, uh, roughly, it sort of like slowly, sort around. of, yeah, mm-hmm. it sort of like died on. out and mm-hmm. then it moved on. Uh, what came after and mm-hmm. why did that sort of replace the daguerreotype? Okay, what came after that would be like the wet plate collodion process, which was being created by Frederick Scott Archer. The mm-hmm. uh, reason why it's being popular is because Frederick Scott Archer decided that not to patent it like how the get did mm. and it's free to use the technical of it is quite exact on and it's way way cheaper mm. to use and it can produce wonderful negatives which what is mean uh, what is intended to do and on the side as well if it's uh, underexposed it makes a wonderful positive as well so with that came about the uh, the advent creation of salt prints in which uh, the predecessors, uh, the early printing methods as well. Mm-hmm. Salt print, then you have the albumin print and so forth. That's where actually uh, reproducibility of images became mm. uh, a popular trend. So the interesting thing about the uh, the camera or the photograph is mm-hmm. that, you know, unlike, say, conventional art history where you have a founding moment or mm-hmm. things like that, there's not really always a, you can't really say that there's a founding moment to sort of like photography right because there are multiple sort of like people experimenting with different Correct. things and alongside the gear mm-hmm. the, the other sort of like story is that of Fox Talbot right mm-hmm. uh, where he was yes. uh, essentially sort of experimenting with a different method uh, was it called the calotype or? the calotype the calotype yes. and mm-hmm. that allowed for already the reproduction of sort of images. It's not as popular as the daguerreotype. If I backtrack just slightly a bit, Mm -hmm. uh, the creation of, uh, in 1839, the creation of photography were conversions of three factors. One is actually the advancements of optics, Mm -hmm. uh, lenses, where we start seeing artists using optics 
to do their artworks and so forth. And then the second is actually the um, what was it the uh, the advancements of chemistry in which people are experimenting with it. People knew that silver actually can capture light. It's just they don't know how to fix it. Right. It is uh, then, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, gosh, I wish I remember. And I think for the longest notes. time. They, they, for the longest time, until they understand how to fix it. Yeah. Because they know how to make images before that. Plus also the refraction uh, of the, the image re- through the lens. That's correct. already uh, a oh, very obscura. old practice. Yeah. Right? Obscura yeah. itself. Right. Uh, Ibn al-Haytam mm-hmm. uh, knew about camera obscura. I mean, like uh, where a darkened room with a whole size on part of the wall would create an inverted image on the other end. He noted down in his, uh, I think, in one of his texts. And later on, they found out how to fix it. That's when photography came about. Uh, William Henry Fox Tabbert did the calotype. Mm-hmm. It's a paper-based type of negative. It came about almost a few years before the guy did, but he never bothered pursuing it. And then, unfortunately, it can't compete to the quality of the garotype, how it became. I mean, like, if compared side by side, certainly the garotype wins. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when wet plate collodion came, it's on the glass plate and it's, uh, it's being, um, being produced with a coated silver sensitized uh Sorry, don't want to get too technical on it. Uh, but it's, it's tag sharp as well. And it's uh, a wonderful negative that it creates. And it can create a positive uh, print of okay. a high quality. With that, it develops further into dry plate and so forth. And it's much more, not to say 100% practical, because we're talking about even more equipments needed to be brought out into the field. Mm. So that's why you have early photographers in the past have a lot of helpers or have a lot of assistants mm. because we're talking about at least 50 kilos or 60 kilos equipment, wow. which actually my equipment is about there. Mm. So each time I want to go out to do just one plate, I have to bring about <laughs> about that much weight wow. or baggage. So what changed? What made photography instant? Gosh, uh, advancements of technology, uh, advancements of... Would you of, attribute it to Kodak? Yes, uh, I do. Uh, and they say, you, you click the picture, we do the rest and so forth. And But the entire process, just for them to come up with that statement, it requires like hundreds of people doing the work. Right, it's the back-end work. Yeah, the back-end yeah. work is not the person who is doing the entire work. Most of the amateur photographers created their own mini darkroom per se just to have the experience of making images. I'm sure you heard your grandfather, your great-grandfather, who has their own personal darkrooms. I don't think he was that rich, but yes. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, imagine. It's, yeah, it's I not, think Sultan Ismail, for example, uh, yes. of Tranganu, uh, used to have his own darkroom, right? Uh, it's not uh, a cheap hobby. I mean, but in 1960s, 1970s, being picked up by mm. a lot of amateur photographers in, mm. back in, in Malaysia. That's true. Even in mm. the newspapers, if you bother sort of like trawling through newspaper of the day, mm-hmm. they normally have photography columns that teach you how to develop photos photographs, how to Correct. not just compose right. images, but actually you got the sense that there was a community that was building around, oh, yes. like, um, you know, the tinkering of this technology. Mm, I mean, like, a uh, community of photography uh, photographers has been around even back in the British 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, if you yeah. check back in the uh, British Journal. 1850s uh, yeah. itself. I mean, you have British Journal of Photography. Oh, yeah. And um, gosh, I mean, like, those guys were uh, notorious. Mm-hmm. They, they are experimenters. They condemn each other. 
just like any <laughs> in a Facebook space. They say, <laughs> no, my method is better than his and all that. That one's rubbish and all <laughs> this and that. So it's kind of entertaining to read and they are experimenting and there are various output that arrive from it. So in terms of photo historical, there are thousands of methods, mm-hmm. even in 1850s, mm. 1840s, thousands of methods. Mm-hmm. It's just which one you want to choose. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so photography back then sounds a bit more geeky. I mean, based on the conversation, right, if you don't mind me using modern terms. Sounds about right. right. Yeah. <laughs> it still is today. <laughs> yeah, it, it requires you to have a lot of like, technical knowledge in, in order for you to be able to at least operate these mm. photos, right? So, uh, what's the artistic side of things back then? Or was it a bit more practical? You know, people just want to try and just capture photos of, you know, normal things. Or were they quite creative back then? At least thinking about the composition of things. Okay, yeah. Um Nada, I think, a French uh, portraitist in Paris, is actually the first, I've, I think, to understand that he advertised himself as the artist that used photography. Of course, like you have William Henry Fox Talbot mm. came around, the first ever portfolio book called Pencil of Nature. But the one that uh, actually that Edmund said, I'm an artist before right. anything else. Even before Margaret Julia Cameron? Before. before her, okay. Margaret Julia Cameron has, his, has her own way of methods. But if in a sense of uh, coming back to the question, uh, composition, majority of the time, like I mentioned before, these are learned people who use this process. So they are familiar with salon paintings mm-hmm. in which they start to emulate and copy uh, how the paintings, the mannerism, the, uh, the composition, the dresses... Uh, and it is an interesting actually values to see it being translated into photography. So this is where you start observing that they start being creative once they understand how the technique works and pretty much they are free reign to use it. Nada is one of the best examples I can say so far that really manipulate in the spirit of composition and being creative and breaking the rules or the norms, I would say, mm. in uh posing his sitters. Talking about creativity, you know, mm-hmm. it just occurred to me, besides, uh, you know, the pension f- to be more artistic, mm-hmm. you know, people take creativity towards very different uh, direction as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I can think of are spirit photographies, which oh, was spirit. all the rage, you know, in the late 19th sort of century where you have people claiming that this is photographic proof that spirits exist. Mm-hmm. And they would very often go to, I mean, I think it's, disputed by uh, believers but Mm -hmm. uh, generally there is also a sense that these are stage photographs where people go at great lengths to create a sense that there is a spiritual sort of like you you can capture spiritual presence through photographs yeah I mean it's like a spirit oh I don't mind the pun it's 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 more like selling snake oil yeah Pretty much it. Yeah. It's a showmanship. But game. at the same time, it's also very creative. you got to hand it to uh, yeah, the it photographers is. that they go to great lengths to actually to sort of like, yeah, come up to with fool, those to photographs. Entertain. To entertain. Um, they have a, a visual presence. You know that when you see a photograph, it's not like you're seeing painting. You know that it's very, very much based on real things. So why, why, what, is it, what is it about the nature of photography that, you know, we're we drawn to it because it, what is it that sort of makes us pause that, Maybe that's different from painting. What experience does it convey that's different from painting? And, and why were people so obsessed by this sort of like new experience that they're encountering through photographs? Depends on which decade. If you're talking about nowadays, it doesn't, for me per se, it yeah. doesn't have that wonder 
um, seeing photographs, you query, you question the legibility of it because mm-hmm. of the captions always misrepresents it. I think that um, you're, you're talking about digital photography, uh, Digital right? and yeah. also nowadays. But if you're talking about how it was in the mm-hmm. past, it is still a magical wonder because you need real-life material mm-hmm. to produce something. Right. It doesn't rely on imagination. Unless that you're doing cameraless techniques such as, um, what was it, the... Um, uh, in within the dark room or manipulation within the dark room, then that's another way of doing it. But majority of the time, photography uh, in the past is only relies on what is being seen real life. Right. So what it represents, it is real. Uh, so in a way that, no, like Bath's sort of like mm. famous statement, but that has been, it's it's an index of something or trace correct. of something that Traces has been there before, right? Well, I do like how, how you put it early on talking about spirit photography. It does remind me on like how scientists use photography mm. actually uh, to document. With exception for there are some botan- botany, they somehow shy away from it. Right. They still strongly That's rely on, right. il- on illustrations You're rather right. than taking straight image of it. Botany is the one that is the slower part on the use of photography uh-huh. within their research. Only much later yeah, on they yeah. start doing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, I, I can't concur as to why. Maybe it's just the romantic side of botany. Um, okay, uh, reason why I'm saying that scientists use photography as uh, a supplementary towards their findings, towards mm-hmm. the observation of nature, towards this is what a person looks or like. Or being this an is, evidential sort mm-hmm. of like proof, right? Correct, correct. It's a right. proof of something that exists rather mm-hmm. than drawings of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. You know, I, I'm also sort of like curious. Now, you've sort of talked about the scientists mm-hmm. uh, and we've talked about charlatans. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like that. But then yeah. I think, you know, if we move on into the early 20th century, then you have the postcards sort of like, you know, correct. coming into circulation mm-hmm. and then the Kodak kind of like proliferation of the sort of mm-hmm. like image. You know, to tell this sort of like history of sort of like photographic progress mm-hmm. seems to me very sort of like, it's very centered on a story of, I guess, technological progress as well mm-hmm. in the camera. Right. Uh, is that generally how people sort of like understand photography history? Uh, that's one part I always advise to students of mine and to look at photography uh, mm. generally quote-unquote, is unofficial. It's like a parasite. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give one example. Um, the term photography itself is capturing or drawing with light drawing and light, so forth, yeah. all that. Drawing with light is just not specifically to one technique. Right. So one day, it's in the daguerreotype. You call it photography. Just like, uh, I think, um, Sir John Herschel mm-hmm. coined it. He's the one that officiated uh, what photography is and specifically to that nomenclature. And then... The wet plate collodion. So the word photography jumps onto wet plate collodion. Okay. And the daguerreotype has been remained not being called photography anymore, but it's been called the daguerreotype. Then wet plate moves to dry plate, mm-hmm. and then it moves on. It jumps from one technology to the next. Photography right. jumps, and that coin. But uh, why once, did not it mm, jump from the daguerreotype to photography uh, to wet plate collodion? 
So uh, well, it did. It did. Okay, uh, it did. you're it saying jumps. that it did. Okay, uh, it, it jumps. Right. It jumps. It jumps from one uh, yeah. one tech, one uh, advancements of image making technology right. to the next. But I'm not saying that the daguerreotype is not photography, but the daguerreotype is no longer the practicing photography. Right. Okay. So even once upon a time, if you recall, photography inkjet was being called photography. Yeah. Okay. I didn't the printing know about tech. That. Right. Okay. I didn't know about that. It was short lived. Right. <laughs> so so and then now photography is now is being digital and right. within your mobile phone after this is augmented reality I suppose right. the next forwarding step mm. that is going to be called the photography or the mannerism of photography mm. so photography always jumps from one technology to the next it always But do you know, that the, the kind of paradigm mm. uh, between say the way a photograph was created in the past mm -hmm. and the digital sort of like shift that occurred sometime in the 90s mm -hmm. is huge, right? I it's mean, big. The, the, the whole sort of like um, the logic behind sort of like the mm. construction of the image is entirely different. One is analog, which is centered on this idea of the, the continuous sort of like feel of uh, representation. The other is digital, which is made up of pixels. Mm -hmm. And that itself, I think, I know it sounds very technical, but that itself is an indication of how different we are, uh, how the image is, is able to sort of like be put together. Am I right? Mm. Uh, how, why do you think we continue to sort of like, you know, call this photograph when we have made this sort of like huge lid? Or this paradigm sort of like shit. Well, if I recall it correctly, uh, Mark Osterman, a photo historian over at George Eastman House, said photography somewhat, well, I don't know if I quote him correctly on this, somewhat stopped at chemical. Okay. And then when it moves away from chemical, it becomes a printing technology, mm -hmm. uh, inkjet and all that. Now right. it becomes a no, not a printing technology, it's just a technology. Right. So pretty much there. I mean, it stops there. Like I uh, mentioned early on in this show that I spoke about it being image object, which is very, very important. Mm -hmm. But where it needs to be tangible. When okay. you say it's in ones and zeros, what will happen to you after you pass away? Don't, if you don't have the password to the phone that you have or to the cloud, mm -hmm. your existence will, I suppose, will be buried. But what if it away. exists in the comments? Uh, well, we never know now, isn't it, right. until it happens. But most of the time, even like uh, towards the recent cases of a few deaths, a uh, few friends of mine, his memory uh, is just wiped out clean. Yeah. Uh, there's no But the chances of an object being destroyed by the ravages of time is well, equally it, as... Uh, well, it's, uh, it's considered artifacts. Yeah. I mean, like the stuff that we find in the past, uh, even like in the Hikaya Moshi, we haven't found the image that, was being, uh, that he had observed because I'm certain that it's been somewhere is either in a rare collection somewhere or it's been kept away from the public or it's been destroyed right mm. uh, or could it have been destroyed, destroyed. Uh, so, But, so I'm, I'm not mm. so sort of like you know uh, sort of that hung up on sort of like the objectness of it but mm. I, I am sort of very interested in the object quality of the photograph in the sense mm. that it does sort of like convey something special about Uh, it has an innate sort of like special quality about it when you, you encounter it, right? That's mm. very different from, say, the, the intangibility of, say, the digital sort of like photographic image. And I think in some ways, it actually sort of like confirms, but also sort of like denies what Walter Benjamin sort of like talk about of the depletion of the aura mm -hmm. of the object when, you know, an object can be reproducible through its image form. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I think that happens in the digital world, but not so much in the actual photograph itself, right? I can't 
Um, I mean, when you see a photograph, you still... Correct. I mean, like, um, when you see a photograph, you see the image, rather yeah. than you see the object. It's being treated as such because that's the perception of it. But I always see original things as absolutely important. Okay, let me put it in much, a very well-known image, the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. It's a well-popular image. You've seen it everywhere. Big posters. Neg- have you have you been and seen the Mona Lisa? I've seen so it. Do you I've know what it. the amount, it's the small. face of disappointment that people have when they Correct. see that image? It's small. It is <laughs> rather wonder, small. But it's, it's actually... It's like, really? It's really? only that size? <laughs> but then again, the importance of it. The, yeah. uh, of course, it has a cultural importance. But you do know that they don't show the real Mona Lisa, right? Oh, well, that depends. I'm, all, I'm not into <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But given the, uh, <laughs> what I meant here is the existence of perception, if one per se, mm-hmm. of the original at the Louvre itself. If Imagine if something that is gone, I mean, like then suddenly it just dissipates its power. Yeah, yeah. If the object remains there Whereas somehow. the digital doesn't... The sort of digital, you know, we had one uh, exhibition over at the Balai Sini recently and it's a digital representation of the collection of Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Certainly it raised interest and all that. I've seen it. Oh, huge and it, interest. Uh, huge interest. Yeah. But comparatively to what I've seen over in Paris, I mean, like, certainly that was continuously has that attraction. I mean, we have tons and tons of wonderful paintings around, but the Mona Lisa is just one tiny painting, one of corner. That, I, I think mm. there's no argument against the irreplaceability of it, but mm. do you think then the reproducible sort of, like, quality of the photograph mm-hmm. actually, or especially in today's context when it's mm. digital, actually democratizes access? Yes, correct. Uh, it does. I mean, on the other hand, it's mm. uh, you can say that on the one hand, it sort of depletes the aura, it depletes its sort of singularity and its exclusivity. But at the other time, on another hand, it's also a democratizing sort of like instrument. Well, it is how it's being utilized and mm. how one can be honest about it. Uh, I'll give one example. Like Ansel Adam, there was one of his print. Um, what was it? Uh, I could not recall exactly which print was it. There was one print. And it wasn't being uh, known until much later that it's his grandson who did the print. And it was a lot more better than Ansel Adam did. But then the value goes higher towards only Ansel Adam's print, not his mm, grandson. Yeah. Even though the grandson's print is far superior than his grandfather. Right. But so, that's the mechanism of the market, that's, right? Yeah, I that's think, the mechanism. Yeah. I mean, like the, it goes back and forth on that part. Mm. Yeah, um, picking up on what Simon said about how, I guess, modern photography sort of like democratizes, I guess, the camera or the art itself. Um, do you think that because I think photography back then was somehow a bit more technical or somehow you need to have not only the knowledge and the expertise but also the means to, to acquire the hobby. Uh, do you think that how people view photography these days is, I guess, not as significant compared to before? Only because mm-hmm. I think people you know, people can just point and shoot, right? So as much as there are groups who try to use the camera in a more artistic way, there are people who are also, you know, taking it for granted, right? So so do you think that it somehow diminishes the value of the art or the the, the process itself? Well, the pro- some people rely on the process and call it art, not the output mm-hmm. of it. They say, oh, I do web play clothing, it's so hard and difficult, and I call and consider that I'm doing artwork, yeah. even though the, the output is... <laughs> yeah, not so. Not so. Right. Um, but I did mention before that photography jumps like a parasite and it jumps to a bigger scale. As soon as something that uh, you have to look at photography as a living entity. So mm-hmm. if it's like popular, cheaper, accessible, I am photography. 
So it it jumps from technology to the next. So when we speak about those that use chemistry, uh, you got to use your gray matter to even produce one single plate. And people say, oh, what about those? Uh, are those accessible? Uh, certainly, no, it becomes less accessible because of its inconvenient. You have to use an extra mile just to make one image since you can just simply, some of them would just pick the phone up and just shoot or some of them barely picks it up and it just shoots. Mm. So uh, the thing is, uh, the, the conceived to see as an art form because of it being harder, that I disagree. But it is a practice and uh, the discipline is how you practice it in the past, I'm sure that you will agree to me with me on this. Uh, penmanship mm-hmm. is gone. Mm. I mean, nobody writes well anymore, cohesive writing and so forth, really few and far apart. And it was a norm in the past that everyone can draw well, everyone can write well, write mm. beautifully as well. It's an, an expectation of an educated or learned man. Now that's not the case. Mm. It's now not a skill set. Yep. Yep. It's not a skill set or requirement. Photography, mm was once upon a time a requirement. Okay, right. Um, maybe uh, we can end with a recommendation of a text or a book that uh, if our readers will want to sort of like read more or find uh, out more about this topic, well, what should I read? Or what's a good sort of like book to you know, get well, into this subject? Uh, gosh, there are various books. Certainly, um, well, difficult to find original, but Pencil of Nature by William Henry Fox Talbot okay. is one of my recommendations. They are available online or Google Books as well. Uh, uh, maybe, I guess, Munshi Abdullah. Sort of Munshi like. Abdullah, if you're, if you're able to retrieve the text, which is it's actually online. It's yeah, online, it's so online. it is available as well. You can see how he's, uh, yeah. Hikayat Munshi and how he uh, narrates uh, mm. in his own observation towards how photography is. And certainly, uh, history of photography, there are various of textbooks, uh, yeah. such as... One uh, of my favourite, I think, is um, Burning with Desire by ah. Jeffrey Betchen. Uh, and he really sort of, instead of locating the invention of photography mm. in 1939, mm. uh, 1839 or, mm. or, or the 19th century, mm. he really set this sort of like long relay of... Uh, of knowledge and in trying to sort of like fix the image all the way back to you know, uh, the, the, the 11th century mm-hmm. uh, and really consider how this sort of like, you know, this desire to sort of like fix the image is this sort of like humanity sort of like a, oh, a long drawn out oh. sort of like humanity's quest. Right, right. Uh, or even I suppose the daguerreotype uh, right. by uh, Badger and White. Uh, that is highly technical book. Uh, some people are barely able to pass on the first chapter, but give and take. It, it has a, a good narrative in terms of the creation of the daguerreotype, its uses, and so forth. And there are various alternate history of photographies as well. So they speak about the early processes, uh, some of them. Most cases, it will be very, very much a straightforward text and um, in layman terms as well. Okay, great. Mm. That was uh, Azriel Smile. He's a photo historian from UCSI University and he's joined by Simon Soon. And we've been talking about the history of photography. Share thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Uh, don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, Azriel Smile and Simon Soon. Yeah, thank you. Most welcome. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.